Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share the most recent work. This week, I was excited to chat with Paul Bloom, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He is the author of seven books, including his latest, Psych, the story of the human mind. Countless people around the world have been introduced to psychology through his online courses, Introduction to Psychology and Moralities of Everyday Life. In this conversation, I discuss with Paul to what extent knowing about psychology actually helps us navigate everyday life with other people. Should psychology students still learn about Freud? Why would Paul never write a textbook and rather die? <laughs> Why is he writing a next book on perversity and something called reactance? And what even is that? How did he manage to become a successful professor while researching such a diverse range of topics? How to use Twitter without becoming a troll? Finally, Paul faces some surprisingly tough questions generated by ChatGPT. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. This week on the Stanford Psychology Podcast, I am so excited to finally be talking with Paul Bloom about everything in <laughs> psychology that I always wanted to ask you. And now here we are because you wrote a book, Psych, an introduction to a lot of hot topics in psychology that will be of great interest to our readers and listeners. Thank you so much for making the time to join this podcast. Thanks for having me on, Eric. I'm looking forward to talking with you. You are Canadian. You were born in Canada and you lived in the U.S. for a while and know you are back in Canada. What is it like to be back home? Oh, that's interesting. I, it's bittersweet. I, I'm in Toronto now. I was raised in Montreal. And if there's a long-standing rivalry between the two cities, I'm not supposed to like Toronto very much coming from Montreal. I'm supposed to find it lifeless and sterile and without the vibrancy of my hometown. But I love Toronto. Toronto is a beautiful city. I miss, I miss my friends at Yale. I'm still in touch with them, but it's nice to be back. There's a lot about Canada, which I enjoy. One thing many people say they enjoy about Canada and the Canadians is how empathic and kind and wonderful they are, which in my experience is very true. You notoriously have a rather mixed view of the utility of empathy. Being around all these wonderful empathic Canadians, have your views of empathy changed at all in the last years? There, there's two things here. One thing is, I think the stereotype of my people, Canadians, are polite. So mm. I'm not sure, I'm not sure to st either the stereotype or the truth is that we're particularly warm and loving. I think there's other nationalities, other groups have that stereotype. In fact, probably the American South is more associated with that sort of warmth, empathy, compassion than the frigid North. We are polite. I like the politeness. I think the politeness, but, but the stereotype doesn't match. But, and I like the segue. Quite a few years ago, I wrote a book called Against Empathy. And, and this was not, despite the people quickly reading the title and skipping everything else, it was not a brief, it was not an argument against being good to each other. In fact, it was the opposite. It made mm -hmm. the case that in order to be good to each other, in order to be kind to each other, do the right and moral thing, we, we should work on our compassion, on our rationality and other things. But empathy in a strict sense of putting ourselves in other people's shoes, though very satisfying, is actually in some ways an enemy of morality. Now, there's a kind of elephant in the room here because, because you work with Jamil Zaki and Jamil is a wonderful scholar and a great person and sadly entirely confused about this issue. <laughs> so he and I have got back and forth in, in the New York Times and the papers and in, in the journal Trends in Cognitive Sciences. And I think kidding aside, there's not a huge difference between us. It's more how we choose to think I'm more of a splitter where I want us to talk about empathy as any very separate from other things and split them up. I think yep. Jamil would describe, would agree that he's more of a lumper wanting to smoothly put a lot of these things together. And he's actually, when, whenever I talk about the book, I, some of are sort of stories about, about very angry people who are very upset about my book. And I always trot out Jamil as an example of a smart, a brilliant person to argue with. My favorite person to disagree with. You wrote many books not just against empathy, the latest one being Psych. What is this book and who should read it? Yeah, ask an author that question. Everybody 
should read it. Everybody should at least buy it. Buy the hardcover, buy an extra copy for your country <laughs> house and something like that. The book is written for people who are interested in, in psychology, who want a high-level introduction to psychology. So you probably shouldn't buy it and read it because you probably know almost everything that's in it. I think I've heard from friends of mine who say they've enjoyed the book and these are like professors in the field. So maybe there's something to get out of it, but you're not really the audience. The audience is a smart person who has a rough idea. They've heard of Freud. They've heard of Skinner. They know about the psychologists deal with depression, anxiety, but they don't know the field. And I would rather die than write a textbook, rather die than read the textbook. So this isn't a textbook, but this is meant to be at a pretty high level tour of the field. Memory, language, mental illness, happiness, implicit bias, consciousness, the brain, the whole shebang. I'm sorry, but you would rather die than write a textbook? I have to follow up on this. What's so wrong with textbooks? Oh, God. Okay, first thing, that is an exaggeration. That is hyper hyperbole. And in fact, I probably would write a textbook if you paid me enough money. But, but I, and I have friends of mine who've written textbooks. One, one friend, Frank Heil, wrote a wonderful, my colleague and pal, wrote a wonderful developmental textbook. Dan Gilbert wrote an amazing intro psych textbook. But it's so much work. And it's not just, there's so many words covering everything. And one of the things about a textbook is you have to faithfully deliver the verdict of the field on every matter, cover everything anybody of significance has said, and so on. And you can't really say, there's a field of psychology a lot of people are really engaged in, but honestly, I think it's overrated. I don't think there's been enough. You, they would, you'd be in, in the biggest trouble. But in my book, I could say that. In my book, I could say some things are overrated. I could say some things are really a lot of fun and significant, and there should be more work put into it. I could do my take on this and my take on that. What I try to do in psych, because I want it to be something which somebody could rely on as an introduction and not my sort of own quirky take on the field, is to be very careful when I say, here's my view. And, but, but even when you write such a book, the fact that I devote a whole chapter to Freud, I know a lot of people who have writ would have written such a book and not said a word about Freud. I'm, I'm, the reason why I like writing the book I did was I don't have to cover everything and I'm also liberated to give my views. I think it's incredibly useful for us psychologists to know what we think of Freud, good or bad, because everyone always asks us, what do you think of Freud? Are you psychoanalyzing me? So it's good to have an answer to that. And I guess another question that people ask us all the time once we reveal we are psychologists is, are you reading my mind? Well, generally, are you diagnosing people all the time? And to which we pretend to laugh because we've never heard that before and ha, huh, creative. And I'm certainly not diagnosing people. I also have no skills in doing that. But I am trying to analyze people sometimes, to be honest. I am trying to understand people. I am trying to use my knowledge in psychology to navigate the social world a little bit better. I think I remember this memory so vague at might not have ever happened or might have been a dream or I don't know where this is coming from. But I think of this memory of asking a psychology professor at some point, no, what do you do with all this knowledge about people that you have? And they were like, I just lecture about it and then I leave it on the table and go <laughs> home and completely forget about it. And I was like, that's so sad. Then why are we learning all about this? So what do you think about the utility of just actually using your knowledge to navigate the social world? Maybe a more euphemistic term than analyzing people all the time. I'll answer that. I'm going to warn you. I'm going to turn around and ask you what you think of Freud. I'm interested. You're somebody who's more entering the field, probably maybe more in touch with current move movements than I am. So I'm curious what you think of Freud. But I'll answer that question, which is that I think to do good psychology, you have to have an eye toward, towards human phenomena. You have to have an interest in people, an interest in what's going on, and an interest in what's going on that's hidden from your eyes. So you, so that, so in some way, there's something a little bit Freudian about how we approach the world. And some of the psychologists who I admire the most, I think really have this gift of looking and looking at human behavior and really delving into it. And then it shows up in its work. But having said that, it's not as psychologists, you characterize yourself as a social psychologist. Yeah. So good. So as a social psychologist, you're interested in social phenomena, but, and you seem pretty charming, but. There's a lot of social psychologists who know a lot about social psychology, but they are not masters at manipulating people and persuading them and molding their minds. They're not. I know a lot of clinical psychologists who actually are not entirely 
mentally whole themselves. It's not like their knowledge has shielded them from depression or anxiety. I'm a clinical psychologist and I raised two kids, two boys now men who I'm very close to, but my clinical psychology, I didn't think made me a better, let's say again, my developmental psychology skills such that they were and make me a better father in the slightest. So I think we got to, I think the question, the answer to the question, are you reading my mind now? Maybe I'm really interested in your mind, but it's not, wow, be careful around me because I have these powers. We really don't. And maybe that speaks to the limits of our field. Deidre McCloskey, the economist, wrote a book called If You're So Smart. Hmm. And it was a critique of, econ- of economists. And it's the line, it's the, the rest of the line is, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And the claim was that if economists knew, really knew how the economy worked at some level, they should hmm. be able to get rich from it. And I can say the same thing about psychologists. If we're so smart, how come we aren't ruling the world? Okay, your turn. What do you think of Freud? I think learning about Freud is exciting in exactly the way that I love watching great movies and I love watching absolutely horrible movies. So everyone loves watching good movies, but I love watching really bad movies just because it's so interesting to me that someone would have thought this made sense and this would be a good movie. And three people, three people who watched the movie might have agreed because how interesting about people like on a meta level. And I think it's similar about Freud. And I should say, I have never in detail learned about Freud. So I can't give you a more detailed answer about like specific ideas. I know that you wrote about it and other people vaguely told me anything about it, but nothing have enough knowledge to give the answer that I would love to give. But it's really just so useful, like to the extent that he's right, I would like to know things that are right to the extent that he's wrong. I would love to know how someone could think that and other people might think that. Just other people are fascinating who are just very different from me and think things yeah. that are completely weird and bizarre to me. I'm fascinating. So I would love to know more and then make up my own mind. So in some ways, the first thing you said was Freud as an informative train wreck, as mm-hmm. somebody who's thinking has gone wrong and what can we learn from this? Just like you can learn how to, what a good movie is by watching a bad movie. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes for the worst parts. Yeah, sometimes you hear colloquia, you hear our colleagues give talks, and the talks are terrible. And I actually find, particularly I found when I was younger, trying to figure out how to give a talk, the terrible talks were very useful. Wow, I guess you shouldn't talk for two hours in a one-hour slot. Yeah, when the slides are unreadable, that's a problem. Yeah, and so you think Freud can form psychology by showing us how it's done wrong? I don't, I would agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think a lot of Freud's ideas are not only mistaken, but so weird and bizarre that it's strange to think a person could have ever thought of them. But on the other hand, having you've looked at the book, I'm a fan. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, I think first thing, I think a lot of his mistakes were the right kind of mistakes to make. Unlike Skinner, who I think made the wrong kind of mistake, Skinner tried to strip away any life away from people. (laughs) And I think this is a horrible move. It's an insane bit of philosophy gone wrong. That while Freud attributed way too much, and yet, I guess what I mean by the right, by the right sort of mistake is a lot of Freud's sexual hypotheses are just bizarre yep. and really lurid and penis envy and primal scene and all of this stuff. But on the other hand, he was right to emphasize the fact that sexuality, including female sexuality, played a big role in our lives, something which is a shocking view at the time. I think that he was way too quick to do to these complicated stories of unconscious motivations. But on the other hand, and you said this yourself, that psychologists now believe this is fundamentally the right approach. If you want to know why people do something, vote for this person, not that person, or, or have this moral belief or whatever. You can't just ask them. Psychology would be a lot easier if you could. It's not just that people don't lie, it's that people don't know. And when you, and so you have to figure out all these clever ways to figure out what's up with people. And now you're following in the footsteps of Freud, whether you admit it or not. And that's my mild offense of Freud. Yeah, no, very mild. Yeah. It's, there's something particularly disturbing about course of knowledge where you learn about a concept from Freud or from other people. It makes sense to you and it becomes so self-evident that you don't even see the concept in everyday life because you just, you can't, you're the fish who doesn't even know they're swimming in water. It's so self-evident to you. And there's also like a, like an illusion of understanding that I feel myself falling into all the time, where every time I learn a useful psychological construct, I'm like, 
Now I get people. Now、yeah. I understand、yes. what they are all like. And then I learned the next concept, and I'm like, I had no idea, but now I know. And then I learned the next, and it just keeps happening. Do you relate to this? I'm not a social psychologist primarily. You guys are particularly guilty of this because <laughs> you have these theories. If it's if people do what everybody else does, it's priming. If they do the opposite, it's reactance. If you know, if it's the social psychology is powerful enough to explain everything, and we all know enough philosophy or science, and that's not such a good thing. That that any anything people could do, you say, I got that, I could explain that. I don't. I actually, I don't know. I I don't. I feel often mystified by what people do, and again,、sure. it goes back to my back to the fact that. Whatever psychological theorizing I do, my interest in the field, I'm at a loss at explaining human behavior. My 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 younger son is very touching. Actually, he once he's now in his twenties. I once made a prediction about what was going to happen in a political race. I think something like, "Oh my God,、yeah, Trump's going to go to prison." I said or something like that.、Mm-hmm. And then he sat there and he listed every prediction I made that was mistaken over the last ten years. It showed a lot of love because he was listening to me. Why such a litany of mistakes? I feel like yes, hundred percent. The more I become a scientist, the more I am trained in psychology, the more I realize I don't understand anything about people. Maybe that's me not understanding my education or doing something wrong. But it's also just people are so complicated. But as I am more confused about people, I feel this increasing need to just come up with some simple explanation, almost like a conspiracy about people that just gives me the sense of I know what they're up to. I get this when I'm traveling. For example, I was in Morocco a couple of weeks ago, which is a culture that I really I cannot even begin to describe how much I don't understand what's going on there and why people do what they do. And I just felt my head was coming up with all these conspiracies and oversimplistic explanations for this is why they're doing what they're doing because it's just so uncomfortable to realize. I have no idea what all these people around me are up to. Do you do you feel this complimentary need of ah? I want to understand what's going on. There's got to be some simple explanation. This allure of the simple, almost conspiratorial explanation. I see where you're coming from. I think we all have our styles as psychologists, and your style, sort of trying to find one neat trick that explains it all, is very powerful because we'll always fail, but nonetheless. As a scientist, it's the right thing to try to do. Go for simplicity. Don't assume that there's fifty motivations fighting it out in the person's head. Assume there's just one, and it just shows up in different ways. And there's a lot of power to that. Again, I tend to go in a different direction, which is I tend to be sensitive to the complexities and messiness of it. I expect the messiness of this. I would draw a distinction from what we're talking about now, which is explaining why did that person do that. What's going to happen next with this person? The prediction of individuals from certain generalizations. What I think psychology really has is success stories.、Yeah. One go-to success story, and this goes back to the sort of thing which is that you know this, and you probably don't realize how many other people don't know this is the unreliability of memory. So it was a fun chapter to write because it's not a field that I'm particularly in, so I follow it as an admirer. But there's so much suggesting that we don't record the world. As if we're holding up a video camera, but rather our memories of events and everything are deeply distorted by our beliefs. What we're asked, it's surprisingly easy to instill, instill in people various forms of false memories, sometimes mild, sometimes severe, and memory itself is a reconstruction. And I like that example because it speaks to instinct blindness, the sort of personal knowledge you're talking about, which is for many people, memory they just know what memory is. And they're just mistaken, but the common sense says you're just storing stuff in your head. And a good hypnotist or therapist could get it out, and we've discovered that's wrong. But it also says it also talks about a bit of limitations of our field. So we make this general claim about memory, and then I ask you to describe what it was like the day you graduated from high school. And I can't tell you whether you get it right or wrong. I can、mm. just talk in terms of generalization. Most people would get it wrong. That distinction is, if we could ever conquer explaining individual behavior, we have such powers, but we don't, and I'm not sure we ever will. Feel the need right now to signal to anyone who's listening who might one day be in charge of giving me a job. I love complexity. I do not want to be the scientist who reduces everything to one variable. Please hire me. No, I do love complexity. I just want to. Yes. No, I, 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 no, I would say to people listening to this who want to give this guy a job, his desire to find. 
powerful explanations that cut through is a valuable and important scientific impulse. If it leads him to ignore the complexity, that's, but I think, but this is good. This is, and in other sciences, it has its successes. Yep. If Newton came up and said there's 4,500 different laws that all apply in a subtle way, we wouldn't know the name Newton. The simple, powerful explanations, you know, the theory of natural selection, say, that's, that, that's what you're going for in psychology. It's not clear our field is going to yield these sorts of powerful, unifying explanations. But, but no, I think they should hire you because you want to find them. Now I have a strong urge to deviate from this topic and go back to, <laughs> you mentioned reactants, which you just gave a wonderful TED talk about the idea of reactants. I wonder if you could explain to us what the topic is, unless, of course, you don't want to. No, that's, you're so polite. <laughs> you might have some reactions to the idea and say, yeah. you can't tell me um, what to talk about. I don't know. My next project that I'm working on and hope to turn into a book is about perversity, which is the way I'm defining it as the desire to do something that you know is wrong because it's wrong. Wrongness could be moral, that you want to do something evil, you want to do something stupid, you want to do something unconventional. I find this fascinating. The everybody wants an example here. The classic example is St. Augustine in his Confessions described going into an orchard with some friends and stealing some pears. And he was very quick to note he wasn't hungry at all. He threw the pears to pigs. And he had nothing against the owner of the orchard. He did it because he knew it was wrong. And it really puzzled him. And it puzzles me too. So I think that there's different theories as to why. And again, here we are. There's not, I mean, not a single thing going on, but many. Sometimes I think we behave perversely because if you're competing with somebody, it's adaptive to be perverse and unpredictable. Sometimes I think if rash, if your life is going badly, rationality fails is failing you. Try being irrational, see how that works. But the thing that most excites me is the idea that we want to be autonomous beings. We want to be authentic. We want to be free. And because of that, we don't want to be constrained. And so there's a field of psychology called reactance theory, which, which explores different ways in which telling people to do X makes them want to do not X. And so sometimes ads designed to discourage drinking and smoking make people paradoxically drink and smoke more. And the reason why is because you don't like to be told what to do. And, and I think in general, sometimes I might defy if one way to put it is if I just do what's reasonable and moral and rational, what use am I? What use is in my consciousness? I could be replaced by an algorithm. And I don't want to be replaced by an algorithm. So I act perverse sometimes, rebellious, quirky. And so I'm very interested in that. Speaking of reactants and algorithms, I am now intentionally, maybe not intentionally, breaking interviewer etiquette. And I decided that after asking you about reactants, I was not going to ask you another question that I generated. I was going to ask you two questions that Chad GPT generated when I asked it to generate funny questions to ask Paul Bloom on a psychology podcast. The reasons the questions have to be funny <laughs> is because the normal questions it generated were very boring. What does he think of empathy? What does he think of empathy? Read his book. No, funny questions. Okay. Funny questions. Okay, this is something I'm ready for this. Yeah, I, uh, we'll see. So the first question is, if you could switch brains, and I, I'm not taking responsibility for any of these questions, if you could switch brains with any person for one day, who would it be and why? So I wouldn't want to switch brains. I'd want to switch bodies. So just to be, I'd want to keep my brain and go have my brain go into someone else's body. Really? I feel like the question might be, if you could think the way another person thinks. Oh. The entire brain. Maybe in the same body. Maybe not. I can't take any responsibility here. I honestly, I like the question. It's not entirely, I want to go to being and say, well, it's, a, it's not entirely coherent because if i could think just the way that you do in order to do i'd cease to be me this is this is i talk about this in the consciousness chapter it's old stuff it's like thomas nagel saying we'll never know what it's like to be a bat because you can imagine living inside a bat's body which is what i thought you were asking but but to really know what it's like to be a bat you'd have to cease to be a human or and become a bat i've often been interested in what it is like to be a baby but to answer your questions, 
to have a deep understanding of what it's like to be a different kind of person. So one type of answer is a person who's very different from me. I'm a man. I choose to see what it's like to be a woman. I'm from which country? I won't see what it's like to be from a poor country. But I think I'm, I think it would be most fun to be a person who's, who's A, living an engaging life, and B, someone who's different from me temperamentally. So not just in terms of gender or ethnicity or country. Pray Elon Musk, what's going on in his head? He seems to be having fun sometimes. He acts unpredictably. I try, going back to our, I, I try to say, I, what is he, I, I try to make sense of his behavior. It's a mystery to me. But coherence to it? So yeah, I want to think Elon Musk for a day. Or alternatively, just imagine it's on a flight. They think like a much better person than me for a day. When those people devote their lives ceaselessly to helping others. Yes. And being kind. And maybe some of that would stick. Okay, the second question by Chet GPT. We, we talked about something related here, but it's not exactly the same. So the second question, and in case you're confused, the algorithm even gave me a potential answer that it hopes you will give. So just if you need some suggestion from our algorithm overlords. So the question is, have you ever used your psychology knowledge to win an argument? And then in parentheses, it says, note, hopefully, Paul Bloom will answer this one with a laugh and a firm no. Here we are. Huh. No. I hope I've used my psychology knowledge to win arguments about psychology, where you and I are arguing with me, and I say, oh, no, I think here it is in my knowledge. But in outside of that, again, there's an interesting theme in our discussion here, which is the extent to which what we know about the mind through, through reading journal articles and running experiments helps us in dealing with real people. And I think there are some cases where the answer, honestly, is yes. So memory is, not, is actually a good one, where I remember a discussion with somebody. I'm not sure if I won the argument, but they were insisting upon something, and I was gently saying, your memory might be unreliable here. You seem awfully confident about an event that happened five years ago. I think there's reason to doubt that, you, that this really happened. But, but over something important, I don't think most arguments are like that. If you think about a real argument you've had, I'm not talking about a debate on stage, but somebody you care about, and really, you're taking it very seriously. I tend to think the arguments tend to turn over more sort of personal and moral facts. And if you bring up saying, well, let me tell you about this Bandura study and so on, you're not going to win it because it's going to think you're a jerk. Does that make sense? I think so. I think so along the lines of not winning an argument, but understanding people and using that understanding to have different arguments. One thing that I have learned, I don't know, I might have just learned this without any psychology background, is that most arguments are not exactly about the point you're exactly arguing. It's not hmm. about the facts that you're exchanging. It's about social identity and being the kind of person who wins arguments and who is the kind of person who's invested in winning an argument as opposed to having a useful conversation in the first place. And that oftentimes there's all these emotional needs and these social needs that really have nothing to do with the specific argument. What's the work on conspiracy theories, where if you believe in one conspiracy theory, you're more likely to believe in another, even if they're completely contradictory. So if you believe yeah. Princess Diana was actually killed, as opposed to had an accident, you're more likely to believe she's still alive at the same time, which... Now I want to do exactly what we're talking about and try to argue against it. But I read a paper, of course, which was on Twitter, of course, yeah. that argued that those findings don't replicate. The problem is the findings conflate people who deny all conspiracy theories where people say yes to both of them. But your deeper point is exactly right. I don't tend to get into many arguments yep. in that sense. I actually don't like them. The very notion of an argument. I don't do it one-on-one. -on -one. I don't mind arguing people in the field where you're not trying to convince the other person, but you're trying to see if you sway the people around them. That could be productive. But you and I arguing, it's just not that much fun. I don't think people don't tend to get convinced as much as they tend to dig in their heels or get hurt. I know I do. And your deep point, which I really like, is when it comes to our friends and people we love, our family and everything like that, often, you're right, often the argument isn't what the argument is about. I spoke to a therapist once who said that when you're arguing with somebody, and it could be your child, or it could be, uh, and they're angry at you, your child or your partner, there's just a series of questions that you should wonder. And one question, is the person hungry? Does the person feel that they're not being respected? 
Do they need a hug? Do they need reassurance that you take them seriously? And typically that's what the fight is about. And again, honestly, for me, I could be really mad about something and argue about it. But the truth is I'm just hungry or I need a hug. I need reassurance. I can relate to all of these three needs right now. And that makes perfect sense to me. Now, the broad- those were tough questions. I'm going to ask you, I have two questions for you now okay. while we're here. And the, there's one question which is so mean, I'm going to ask you to tell me off air, which <laughs> is, you've done a lot of these podcast interviews. Who was your worst? I'm not, I'm not as, just think about it, but I, I, you would just, I'm not fair to ask you that. But who was one of your best? Who was one of you really surprised you and just blew you away? So it's not a surprise, but the best, one of them, one of the various forms of best Dan Gilbert is just really yeah. so fun to talk to. I was telling you earlier, I had the fortune of working with him as a research assistant in college for a summer. And what's so fascinating about Dan is that he, he just is brilliant. Like he is a good speaker. He's a good lecturer. He gives good TED Talks. But then you talk to him one-on-one and he's just as engaging. It's not a different yeah. personality that he adopts when he's speaking and then he's really bland or boring in everyday life. No, he's just genuinely interested and full of interesting insights. And so I was saying earlier, he could have talked about the philosophy of phone books or he could have been reading out a phone book to me. It would have been great. It would have been really fun. And then on a very no. different note, Paul Rosen was uh-huh. incredible fun to talk to <laughs> because it was the most unpredictable interview I've ever done. And I entered the conversation having prepared all my questions about the topic he wanted to talk about. And I get on the call sweating, nervous to meet Paul Rosen. And the first thing he says is, hi, I just read something else and I want to talk about this instead. You don't know what it is, but let's just talk about it. Which, of course, is one of the first interviews I did. Absolute terror. I was like, oh, God. But then it was so easy because he just talked and all of it was so interesting and interwoven, creative, and it was very easy, even though I thought it was going to be very hard. Those are great answers. Those are great answers. I share your respect for Dan, who's also very funny, very warm. Very honest and often a good person to argue with. He, he disagrees with me a lot, particularly about, I, I wrote a book called A Sweet Spot where I defend motivational pluralism. He thinks that's an idiotic view. Mm-hmm. He thought that my discussion of replication crisis in psychology was deeply unfair. And so he's a really good guy to argue with. And then Paul Rosen is somebody I've always looked up to. And in some ways, it, he's, he has an unusual role in our field where he doesn't, he didn't invent a theory that gets built around him. He doesn't, he's not the name, like the Rosen theory. He didn't have, a, he, he tend to work in areas like disgust and food where no one had paid much attention to. And he just, he is just brilliant. He's full of brilliant, fun ideas. And when I was an assistant professor at the University of Arizona, I was doing all sorts of work on another topic and on language development, aspect of language mm-hmm. development. And Paul Rosen came to give a talk. And I'm sitting, I remember where I sat in the room and he gave a talk a long time ago. And I'm thinking, afterwards, thinking, man, I wish I could study those sorts of issues. Mm-hmm. And if it was a story that I made up, I would then immediately change my lab and then study those sorts of issues. But of course, no, I didn't. I sat, did the same thing for four or five more years. But then gradually I thought, I want to study what Paul does. And then I started doing more and more work on morality. So two, two good answers. I respect those answers. It's not just specific topics that Paul studies that are understudied. He also studies a lot of topics. And you study a lot of topics. And I think it even says on your website, something like I study it. A huge amount of topics, something like that, which is, I like to see it because I am interested in a lot of things. And I love the topic I'm studying now. And there's so many different angles on it. And I constantly have to fight this urge to go broad, broad because you have to specialize and you have to go yeah. more narrow. And you have to do that. To what extent do you think people can differ as academics in how much they specialize on one topic versus they can go broad? Is it more of a function of career stage where later as a professor you can go broad and now you have to specialize when you're a grad student? How do you think about this trade-off or is it even a trade-off? It's a good question. It's something I've struggled with through my career. There's a lot of people who I respect who are like laser beams. And they're in their 50s or 60s, and they're doing the same topic they did their graduate dissertation on. And it's terrific. It, they do this terrific generative research program. Maybe it's the neuroscience of memory or, or implicit bias or the acquisition of nouns. And just this amazing research career that shaped the field. And, and 
I have admiration for that, but I am too flighty. I'm interested in too many things. So I work on different topics. I, I, I think Pat followed a little bit of a pattern of, of serial monogamy where I work on a topic for a few years, like empathy. And then I keep my hand in, but I shift and focus on something else. I think so much of our field depends on figuring out the way you are and then trying to construct a career around it, playing up to your strengths and trying to duck your weaknesses. And, and so I love the idea of doing a lot of different things. When I was in graduate school, I had the same love and it was a problem. It was my, my graduate school career was not exactly illustrious. I was just interested in too many things I couldn't fix onto it. And I think the advice to a PhD student often is, okay, you can do a lot of things and you actually should just spread out a little bit. So you don't have all of your, all of your eggs in one basket. I was struggling to find that expression, but, but you do more than one thing. But if you do too many things, you don't have a dissertation at the end of it. It's very tough to have a job, to get a job. If you don't have a job talk to give, you say, oh, I study five different things and gobble them together. And to some extent, the same thing is true early in your career when you're trying to make a name for yourself, trying to get tenure and so on. But I do like people to err on the side of doing a lot of different things at once. I think there's, there, there's a utility to it. I'm just speaking my side of the story. The people who do one thing will have their own side and their own advantage. But one thing is that if you work on, say, three different projects, maybe one of them will work, but most things don't work. So if you just have one thing you're plugging away on, there is a high risk that nature just won't be cooperative to you and nothing will work out. And then there's a sort of cross-pollination, which happens, where if you study, I don't know, game-theoretic approaches to marriage, and you're also interested in the behavior of crowds, sometimes what you learn from one field will drift over to the other. And so it's a way of becoming a sort of interdisciplinary scholar within your own field. But I'm definitely on one extreme. And if I, talk, if I was talking to somebody early in, in the field, I may not well tell them or do what I did. There seems to be a related, a different trade-off, or not trade-off, but struggle that many young scholars have, where really early in your career, especially, you have to be good at everything. You have to be good yeah. at coming up with ideas, designing experiments, analyzing data, writing it up, presenting it, it's all of these different things. Whereas in other models in industry, you specialize on whatever part of the process you are an expert in, and then there's other people taking over the other parts of the process. To what extent is that something that people, like to what extent do we really have to be good at everything now versus later as a professor? Is it easier to specialize on whatever aspect of the research process, whatever stage you're most efficient at versus you have to be good at everything to some extent? How do you think about this? You often have to be adequate at everything, yep. but you're right. The field has gotten a lot more competitive. There's a lot more going on. And, and unfortunately, or for better or worse, I have seen people in this world who are good at everything, who seem to be wonderful, gifted teachers and brilliant st statisticians, but creative minds and so on, while, while raising a family with seven kids and being an ultra marathoner. I am not such a guy. And so if you're a mere mortal like me, you have to make strategic decisions and say, I'm going to focus on this and not on this. For this, I'm going to be merely adequate. I think sometimes people go crazy trying to excel at everything. And I think, I, I think know thyself is really useful. Sometimes you have to be adequate. You can't go, you can't go into grad school and in psychology, for instance, and say, I'm not good at stats. So I'm not going to learn any. Yep. That, that just won't fly. Yep. But it's not, if you just don't get joy out of it, there's so many other things you could focus on once you reach some sort of minimal competency. You could also get help from just about everything. Psychology can be a very social field and you could get people to, you get collaborators who are good at what you are bad at and vice, vice versa and gains from trade and all of that sort of thing. So if you're in a project that involves really complicated statistical analyses, it's not necessarily a mistake to say, I'm not going to spend a time figuring out how to do this. I'm going to find a collaborator who, could, who I could work with on this. And I kind of like collaborations. I, I sometimes find collaborators who are good at what I'm good at, <laughs> which is maybe the wrong way to do things where we, I love talking about ideas and making connections. And I find a lot of my collaborators do that. And then we decided we need another collaborator to do the rest of it. But, but you can't be good at everything. And I, for instance, 
I am not good at writing grants. I had graphs. I got a big award a little while ago, which gave me a lot of money and that's nice. But I've never been, I've never been good at getting those grants and writing grants. I did NIH grants. And I find them so miserable. If that was my job, I would quit it. And so I don't write as many grants as some other people. I don't like running a big shop. So there's people I respect who have a lab with 20 people, 30 people, postdocs, lab managers, techies, a lot of grad students, a lot of undergrads working in that. But I'm not a project manager. I'd like to spend my time reading and thinking, and my advising style is more boutique, where I just talk to people one-on-one and work with them. And again, there's nothing wrong with people who have big labs, but it's just, you just, it's one style. The people who have big labs, the trade-off for them is they don't tend to work as much one-on-one with individual people. There really is, even if you're good at everything, there's just so many hours in a day. Speaking of which, we, I, as a grad student, I'm struggling to do all the things I want to do because there's so many opportunities that I want to say yes to. I can't even imagine what it's like to be Paul Bloom. The internet, YouTube famous Paul Bloom, best-selling author Paul Bloom. <laughs> You must have so many invites to do all kinds of things that you just don't have the time for. How do you say no to things? And do you feel like you found a balance where you have enough time to do things you want to do, read books and watch movies and just enjoy family time? It's a good question. The mechanics of saying no to things are, I have some, I have some letters that I just automatically, I just scroll and click on this. And I have very nice letters saying, I can't do what you're asking me to do. When I raised young kids, I went through a period where I said no to almost all travel. And later on in my life, I accepted more travel. I think I've going to struggle with this because I did not think of this. This is somebody else's line, but you should try to imagine what it's like before saying yes. Imagine what it's like the day, how you're going to feel the day before you're supposed to fly off to it or mm -hmm. the day before it's due. And will you regret saying yes? I tend to say yes for things. Sometimes I say yes for things that are lucrative. I'm trying to renovate my house. Sometimes I say, I like to say yes to things that are interesting. I just went to a wonderful conference in Tucson, Arizona for, on metaphysics run by a friend of mine, Lori Paul. And it's not so much my field, but it was so interesting. I had so much fun there and I learned so much. I had zero regrets. Uh, and then you end up saying yes to things because you feel it's, you have an obligation to help a friend, to help a student. And then you sometimes say yes to things purely altruistically. I feel we have some responsibility to review papers, to, to write tenure letters, for instance, mm -hmm. even though there's maybe no joy to it and sometimes no personal mm -hmm. connection. But you're often in a situation more and more these days, not that everybody has a podcast. It's by the law. Every family must have one podcaster. <laughs> and if you write a book or anything like that, you will be deluged by invitations to be on people's podcasts. And, and then you, I tend to be very selective. And often, because I'm promoting a book, I'll say yes to people who have big audiences, like right away. But often, I will do somebody with just because they seem interesting and fun. How to Twitter? This might oh. be a weird note to end on, but <laughs> your advice might be don't use Twitter or academic Twitter. But it seems like you found a way to use Twitter in a meaningful way that spreads kindness and applauds other people's work. Well, what's you. your advice for young people thinking whether they should join academic Twitter? So the advice for Twitter might change because since Elon Musk bought the platform, I think the disastrous transformations yep. to this where it's just been, he's been, and I, I don't come at this. I come at this with somebody who has some respect for him, for Tesla, for SpaceX, for that sort of, I'm not anti-Elon Musk, but man, he did everything stupid that could be done. And he may drive the platform to the ground. So this may be, when people listen to this podcast 30 years from now, they may say, what's Twitter? But right now, I think every academic should be on Twitter because it's the way to learn about what's happening in your field. It's how I learned about a replication crisis. It's how I learned about both the conspiracy theory paper you told me about and the more recent paper arguing it's mistaken. I follow a bunch of psychologists and it just keeps me in touch on the field gossip, who's being accused of what, who's fighting with whom, research papers. Every day I find a cool paper somebody mentions. I just put in my bookmarks and look at it later. So that's the minimal way how to use Twitter. You just do that. And then you do that. And then what you do is you announce the papers you produce and you say, oh, look, this name, I'm going to show it to my friends. Or you celebrate your friends or you do dumb jokes. So that's, that's the minimal where I think everybody should do it. I think it's a mistake 
not to get on Twitter because there's so much stuff coming. The hard question is how active do you want to be in, in the chaos and brutality of becoming act, an active voice in, in the different issues of the day, trans issues, issues about free speech, issues about a replication crisis, issues about the political figure you love and you hate, and so on. To some extent, that's a moral decision. If somebody wants to say that, wants to say, look, I'm a hardcore libertarian and I got to spread the word, I got to tell people my views, mm -hmm. who am I to say you shouldn't do that? But I guess I feel that, so that's a short, honest answer, which is some people go to Twitter and they make trouble. And I think they have every right to make trouble. But I think what a lot of people don't know, and here's my advice on Twitter, is if you go on Twitter and you're nasty to people, you mock them and you're cruel to them. And we'll, since we're talking about psychology to other psychologists. So this psychologist, I think, this psychologist is a racist. This psychologist yeah. is way too woke and is an idiot and so on. You don't real, people often don't realize the effects of this. What happens is they tick, and I have several people in mind here, which I'm not going to say their names, but they say something, something extraordinarily nasty about somebody. And then they get a lot of likes and people chime in and they think, this is great. I'm so popular. And what they miss is that so many people watch this and think, what a jerk. Yep. Including, roll their eyes. Yep. Roll their eyes, including often a person who they're attacking. And people have long memories for this sort of thing. Now, if you really think so-and-so is a monster and it is your moral duty to tell the world that, go for it. But don't be under delusion that this is going to make you popular and beloved. You got to realize that there's a cost to this. And then there's this sort of higher level cost that you may be making the world a worse place. I'm with, there, there's always exceptions. We could argue about the exceptions, but I think most people deserve to be treated with respect. And I lose respect for the more nasty people on Twitter. I try not to follow them. What about you? Yes, I think people who call out others try to stay away from them in the way that you describe, even if I agree with their assessment, calling someone out, and I agree, yeah, this person needs to be called out. Just because what are your intentions too for doing this? Do you really hate this person and do you want the world to know or do you just do it for the likes and the attention? And it's, it's just not a pure motivation that I might infer. Maybe that's my cynicism doing that. But that's also another part where I'm like, well, why are you doing this? Are you just doing this for the cloud yeah. to actually make things better? And so that's another layer that I think, yeah, it just doesn't help. And oftentimes people already know someone is a bigot or they already agree. And then they just pretend to go along. A phenomenon that I've become really interested in recently is that the loudest, most toxic voices on Twitter and social media in general, they're oftentimes just a minority of people. It's not yeah. a lot of people who actually produce these contents. But the few people who are this toxic and are really just hostile, they are very loud. And so we see their content everywhere and it gets promoted on social yes. media. And now we think everyone is like this and we become really distrustful and cynical of social media and people in general and people these days on the internet. And actually, it's just a few people driving this. And so that's I think nice, there are all these downstream put. consequences. That's nicely put. I know it connects to your own research. I think it's Pareto's law or something, <laughs> some sort of power law. But apparently, I've reason statistics is that some major cities have these incredible rashes of shoplifting. But there's yeah. only a fairly small number of people do a yeah. lot of shoplifting. One family. Yeah, it's one dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true for sexual violence, true for life, which is often, there's a big problem, but there's a small number of people causing much wrong. And yep. I think the toxicity of Twitter and social media more generally often reduces to that. Yeah. You and I could sit back and we could come up with like with a thousand names of people we know, but 10 names of people who make life worse for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And then the rest of us become complicit by liking yes. their content because we perform this outrage that we think we have to perform or else no one will like us. And then I talk That's to my right. friends about this seemingly outrageous issue and they say, I also have no idea what this is about. I was just like, yeah, I guess this is bad please like me, <laughs> give me a job. And then we become complicit and it just gets yeah. worse. Yeah. And this actually comes down to, I think what sometimes another ingredient is here is a failure of empathy. Mm. So I've never been canceled by myself, but I never had a mob of Twitter on Twitter saying terrible things about me <laughs> yet. Mm. But I've had this happen to more than one friend mm. for, on the left, on the right for different reasons. And it's horrible when it happens. You, it, it, 
I think we have a failure of imagination. Oh, I'm just liking this comment, mocking so-and-so. But then this person sees all the people they thought like them attacking them. And it's soul crushing. Now, maybe some people deserve it. We, we talk about that. But I think people, I, I think we are far too quick to be cruel. And I think part of the problem is we don't take the time to imagine what it feels like to be the target of cruelty. Yeah, and it's easy to de-individualize the other person that you are attacking and just yep. not even see them as a human. I have friends who are running conversation studies trying to bridge partisan divides, Democrats and Republicans fighting. And now they're supposed to talk on a video call to each other after like an empathy intervention, for example, and just get them to talk to each other more nicely. And like a whole team of research assistants making sure it's not going to get too violent and the IRB getting all worried about it. And no one is hostile. Everyone is so polite. There's no, you, you don't get any effects because everyone is just like peak level ceiling effect kind on these one-on-one -on -one settings. And it's really just on yes. the internet when it's so much easier to talk about this. There's this phenomenon I learned about recently that I thought was so useful, nut picking, not nitpicking, but nut picking, <laughs> where you pick the most nuts member of the outgroup and then you yes. think that's the whole outgroup, right? <laughs> and then you categorize everyone in the outgroup as if they're this nuts and crazy. And yes. I, it's just, it's yes. not useful. Yes. And even if you consciously know about it, it's hard not to, yeah. not to succumb to it. I find that, just repeating what you said, I find almost inevitably people in person are much more nuanced and yeah. complicated and kinder than they are on the internet. Yeah. I've encountered people on the internet who are known for their extreme views. And again, sometimes on the left, sometimes on the right, you talk to them. And it's just kind of, it's just more, it's more normal. Yeah. They can also be good at hiding it. Or when it's TV cameras in their face, they might be incentivized to not be as extreme. And yeah, people are complicated. I think that's really the key takeaway from our conversation. I guess no, they can be a little less complicated if they read your book and have a bit more of an understanding. That's a good, that's a good, good pitch. Good. <laughs> Thank you so much for making the time. This was wonderful. I could have gone on for hours, but we can't. This has been a are. real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Following Robert Cialdini's advice here on this podcast, let's see if I can convince you to take about five seconds of your valuable time and leave us a quick review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. <laughs> this podcast has been a labor of love by several wonderful young folks here in the department, and we have been surprised by the ever-increasing reach the podcast has had. We are near half a million downloads a year and a half since we started, with tens of thousands of new downloads and thousands of new followers every single month in nearly every country around the world. Help us make even more people excited about psychology by leaving us a review or subscribing to our no spam, all fun substack at Stanford PsyPod to connect with other listeners or shoot us an email with your thoughts or suggestions at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful psyched